On the morning of April 12, 1981, 14-year-old Sheila Sharp returned from a sleepover to her family's home in the Northern California Mountain Resort community of Keddie. Inside cabin 28, Sheila found the bodies of her mother, Sue, her 15-year-old brother, Johnny, and Johnny's 17-year-old friend, Dana Wingate, all tied up, beaten, and brutally murdered. Sheila's 12-year-old sister, Tina, was also missing, but her much younger brothers, Greg and Rick, and their friend, Justin Smart, were asleep in a bedroom, totally unharmed and unaware of what had happened. Today, we're counting down the most curious clues from the Keddie Cabin murders. And by the time I tell you what number one is, which is a damning clue, maybe we can finally answer the question, who killed the Sharp family? you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 curious clues of the Keddy Cabin murders. So obviously we never really cover one crime for an entire episode. That alone should show everyone listening how truly, like, outrageous this case is. It is gruesome, it is terrifying, and it is so perplexing in the end. I know, it really is. I remember when we covered this on Morbid and it was such an intense case. Yeah. And I was so excited to have like a whole crime countdown dedicated to it. Yeah, because it's the brutality of it all is what really gets me. There is so much rage and ruthlessness involved in these murders. It blows your mind that it's real. It's that, and it's also the fact that this case is technically unsolved. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with all the information that we have and you guys are going to see, I I feel like we could solve this. (laughs) I feel like we all know who did it here. So I'll put our noggins together. Well, the number one spot is mine, like I said before, and it will definitely have people thinking about this, specifically this. On top of that, we will be going into a lot more detail for our top spot this time around. Elena has five pieces to the puzzle, and so do I, but neither of us knows which the other has. So let's get this puzzle done, guys. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
10. I'll start us off with number 10. The crime scene points to more than one killer. Being that this is a cabin in the woods situation, this could have been written off as a random lone wolf killer who stumbled upon the cabin. But the way in which the bodies were found suggests one person could not have pulled this off alone. The deputy coroner at the time, Doug McAllister, stated that the blood splatter suggested Sue, Johnny, and Dana were all killed in the living room where they were found. They were all bound using wire and electrical tape, and the murder weapons were determined to have been knives and a hammer. Oh, something about a hammer. Terrifying. But it seems illogical that one person would have taken on three people, tied them all up, and carried out the murders without a struggle. I mean... Who knows, but it just seems a little weird. It's not impossible, but it's like pretty improbable. (laughs) There is one thing that could call this into question though. There was evidence that a pellet gun or a rifle was used during the crime. It potentially could have been one person using it in a threatening way to pull this off alone. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But Doug Thomas was the Plumas County Sheriff back then. And he said, whoever did this, and there was more than one person, had to have blood all over them. That is 100% true. I mean, yeah. In every way. Absolutely. Sue Sharp, the mother, was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa. She was nude from the waist down and gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which had then been secured with medical tape, probably to muffle her screams. (sighs) Sue was covered by a yellow blanket. Her hands and feet were bound by electrical wiring. Her son Johnny and his friend Dana were found on the living room floor with blood around their heads and necks. Johnny was face up with his hands and feet bound by an electrical cord that also wrapped around Dana's feet, probably so that like neither of them could run away. That's so specific. It's so specific and just like, it would take a lot to think of that, I think. The Plumas County Sheriff and his special investigator believe that possibly as many as six people were involved in one capacity or another in the murders or the cover up. And I think I agree with that. I think there has to be more than one guy here. I mean, six sounds like so many people and it just sounds so horrifying to think of this happening with six people doing this a lot but it's not i i kind of believe it yeah it's not unthinkable so much brutality and so much going on and they had to pull off so many different things it has to be more than one person i think so the other thing here is that this is such a small town like it would make sense if there was a lot of people involved and it was like some kind of cover-up oh yeah Small towns, that's like what they're made for. Yeah, hush, hush. Is a cover-up. Nine. Number nine on our countdown is fingerprints and DNA. In a crime scene, one of the best ways to determine who the killer or killers are is using scientific evidence, including fingerprints or DNA. In the Ketty case, both were found, yet the case remains unsolved. That's so mind-blowing to me. It is. Testing for DNA at crime scenes really started to become a thing in the mid-80s. This crime happened just a few years before in 81, so just missed it. Right. But evidence that's been collected in unsolved cases like this one have been tested. It's just a matter of finding a match. Or possibly in this case, revealing if one has already been found. In April 2018, Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg stated that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect. Keep that in mind, living suspect. Right. 
Investigators pulled the DNA from a piece of white medical tape. They found the segment of tape next to the body of Sue Sharp, the mother. If it's a living person, it could be a name we haven't heard about in this case. There's consistently been two men most associated with the murder, and they have both since passed away. Yeah. So that's very curious. Well, and I wonder if that's why they think so many people were involved then. Exactly. Detectives were also able to recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail that led to the cabin's back door. But the crime scene wasn't exactly kept protected in the beginning, so it could kind of match anyone who was on the site. Right. That infuriates me. Why does that always happen in these kind of cases? Just why are you letting the crime scene get contaminated? It was like, hey, there's a lot of evidence, but like we kind of messed it all up. Secure the crime scene. The lack of any other fingerprints and identifiable DNA left at the scene by the perpetrators has really hindered investigative efforts for years. Again, crime scene contamination could also be a big factor in why DNA and fingerprints haven't been useful in this case. I think that maybe, I, I'm hoping here, I think this is also wishful. Yeah. I'm really hoping that this one person that this DNA matches, mm -hmm. they could be just holding it close to them, not saying anything. And maybe that's why we're not hearing a lot about it. Maybe they're trying to pull the threads a little more to unravel the whole thing. And that does happen a lot. Like, they'll be like, you know, yeah. we do have one guy. And they're just like, we're not going to tell you anything else. And then a few years later, you might find out. And it's smart police work because you don't want to let too much out because then you have people coming forward, giving information they heard in the press. Mm -hmm. But if it's information that was never released, you, you can know nail you it got down. something there. Right. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 curious clues of the Keddie Cabin murders is the murder weapons. According to the autopsy reports, Sue, Johnny, and Dana were killed by blunt force trauma from hammer and knife wounds. And there's something terrifying and odd about the weapons found at the scene, but also something questionable about the weapon that wasn't. We mentioned earlier that medical tape had been used to bind the victims and also over their mouths, specifically the mother Sue. The medical tape isn't quite a weapon, but the daughter Sheila, who discovered the bodies, stated that the family didn't keep medical tape in the house. So it's logical that one of the suspects brought it. Ugh. And kind of a sign that this was premeditated. Yeah, you would think so. Unless, I mean, the only thing I can say to play devil's advocate here is some people have medical tape in like a first aid kit in their car. That's true. You could go with that. Now, it's unclear if the other weapons were brought in by the killers, but when they arrived, police found a bent steak knife on the floor of cabin 28, probably bent because of the brutality. Jeez. Plus, they found a butcher knife and a claw hammer, both bloodied, just sitting side by side on a small wooden table near the entry to the kitchen. That's so disturbing. So ominous, like terrifying. Oh. And it's also like, what killer just leaves the weapons nicely placed on a table? Yeah, I feel, that's, I feel like that's a... A choice. Definitely. It's almost like they're kind of like presenting Here they are. it. Now, when authorities questioned the Sharp family's neighbor, Marty Smart, who lived two cabins away from cabin 28, he told them he owned a hammer that went missing shortly before the murders, but it wasn't found at the crime scene. And it's kind of like, why reveal this detail? I'm curious if the police specifically asked about his ownership of a hammer. Well, then I'm wondering if he didn't, if he, if he was involved in this, if he didn't remember whether they left that at the crime scene or not. So in order to cover his own butt ahead of time, he was like, weird, if you found a hammer there, 
I happen to get one stolen from me. So crazy. But I think it might be like, I don't remember if we left it there or not. Yeah, that's a good you know, point. You never know. Look at that detective work. I know, I'm just saying. In our episode about internet sleuths who sometimes become a key part of solving a case, the Ketty murders are no different. In 2016, investigators received a tip from an online forum. The manager of the forum told investigators a tipster posted information about a potential murder weapon. The tipster said that he found a rusted hammer while searching an area near the Ketty cabins with a metal detector. The recovered hammer was an Estwing brand and matched the description of the hammer Marty Smart had lost before the murders. Special investigator Mike Gamberg says the hammer is top of the line and expensive, not something that you would just leave lying around. So I kind of think you're right. Like, I think Marty was trying to spin a narrative there. Yeah, it's just for him to mention the hammer and then for him to be such a realistic suspect here, mm -hmm. a person of interest at the very least. Right. To me, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the game. It was he was just smart. trying to get out ahead of it. Seven. At number seven this week is The Revelations of Marilyn Smart. Marilyn was Marty Smart's wife back then, and mother to Justin Smart, who was one of the boys found unharmed at the crime scene. The Smart family was questioned after the murders, as we know. While Marty talked about his missing hammer, Marilyn had several pertinent things to say. On the night of the murders, the Smart family had a man named Bobo Betty staying with them on a temporary basis. Marty and Bo first met a few weeks earlier at the VA hospital, which to me is like, that's a pretty quick friendship that you're just like, hey, friend, do you want to stay at my house? Want to have a sleepover? Yeah, you want to do that? Let's get it. Weird. On April 11th, the night of the murders, Marty, Marilyn, and Bo decided to go to the backdoor bar for a few drinks. Marty was a chef at the bar, but he had that night off. The Smarts and Bo apparently ran into Sue Sharp that night and invited her to the bar, but she declined. At the bar, Marty complained to the manager about the music. He got all angry, like all up in arms. So the Smarts and Bo decided to return home, which you're like, hmm, is he an angry belligerent drunk? I also need to know what Sounds was playing it. that night. What was playing that made you so angry? Taylor Swift. I need to, was Journey playing? I don't, <laughs> what's going on? Marilyn watched television before going to bed. After calling the manager of the bar again to complain, it's a lot, Marty and Bo went back to the bar. During a follow-up interview with investigators, Marilyn told authorities that Marty hated Johnny Sharp, the teenage son, though a reason for the hate is not clear. That's odd. I need to know why. It was Mar probably over something kind of stupid, I think. I'm sure it was, but it's like, why, why? Like such a deep hatred yeah, for a very teenager. Weird. I do wonder if we're going to talk a little bit more about a possible reason for that, that we at least could point to. We're going to talk about it later in the countdown. Yeah, for sure. Marilyn also revealed a suspicious bit of info. Are you ready? I'm ready. On the morning after the murders, she saw Marty and Bo burning something in their fireplace. When two people are like together burning something in a fireplace other than wood, that's just yeah. so sus. This is in two grown men sitting over a fireplace like burning something. No. It's always nefarious. That's weird. Always. They did it. You're always doing that. Finally, in 2008, she claimed in a documentary on the murders that she suspected her husband and his friend Bo were responsible for the murders. 
I mean, I think so maybe as well. I mean, one, the fact that he apparently hated the teenage son. For yeah, no reason. motive. He's already angry and drunk that night. More motive. He's He looks like he's in it to fight, mm-hmm. for sure. Like he's trying to fight with the manager. He's trying to like... Stuff's going down. And then the next morning, and you're the burning fireplace. someplace in a fireplace. Like after it just all of it that all is lines suspicious. up. Right. It's all at the very least suspicious. Six. Landing at number six is Marty and Bo's checkered past. Since we've brought up Marty and Bo's actions the night of the murders, it seems appropriate to get a little background on these men that possibly shows they'd be capable of committing such a horrendous crime. Yeah, because you're not just going to walk off the street with a perfectly clean record and then do this. And then just be like, here we go. Marilyn Smart has admitted that her husband allegedly tried to run over her and one of her sons once. Oh, okay. I think that's all we need to know about this guy. That's that's a bad guy. But here's some more. In 1980, he allegedly pulled a knife on her and threatened to cut her. Oh, okay. Yet again. He's a bad guy. He is a bad guy. (laughs) And yet again, evidence of anger management issues with Marty Smart. To say the very least. Yes. Special investigator Mike Gamberg said Marty was also supporting himself and his family by allegedly selling drugs. That's a stressful thing to do. That's a very stressful job from what I've heard. Yeah. According to the Sacramento Bee, Gamberg also said the two men showed back up to the bar the night of the murders wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses (laughs) and, quote, acting weird. Like, I don't know if they were role-playing men in black or... what? Maybe they were selling drugs in, like, fashion. I I don't know. That's three-piece suits? That's a lot of... I mean, most guys don't like to wear, like, a lot of suits or even, like, a tie. It's... It's a mood, it's a vibe, it's a feeling, it's a whole thing. It's something. Now, both Marty and Bo had criminal records, which are shocking, guys. Wow. And Bo allegedly had ties to organized crime in Chicago. So oh, now, now we're getting somewhere. He may have known what he was doing. The big piece of info that provides a possible motive, there are reports that Sue Sharp had been counseling Marilyn Smart on her abusive marriage and had helped create the plan for Marilyn to leave Marty. Uh- Oh. Like, that is huge yeah, in this case. Yeah, that's a big one. When finding out about Sue's interference with his marriage, Marty reportedly went, quote, ballistic about it. Oh. Which I feel like he probably went ballistic about everything. Yeah, it sounds like that's his thing. But it gets more complicated. There were also rumors that Marty and Sue were involved with one another. And there it is. In a love triangle forms. And that could be why Johnny and him did not get along. Exactly. But neither Marty or Bo were ever arrested for the Ketty murders, and both have passed away since. Bo died in Illinois in 1988, and Marty died in Oregon in 2006. It's, this looks too, too smooth. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you can't deny the connections here. All the anger issues, the ties to organized crime, and I, I have to say, the three-piece suit, like, what? It's the three-piece suit for me. It really is. <laughs> I, and, was, you know, I was fighting not saying It really that. is. And it's, how many people have this kind of horrific murder happen, and also around them are people involved in organized crime and really shady things and are really violent, angry people, but they have nothing to do with that coincidence of a murder? I was just gonna say, guys, sometimes <laughs> things are not that coincidental. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
so far, what stands out to me is the, the three-piece suit. The three-piece suit. And also the fact that he tried to run over his wife and sons. And then pulled a knife on his wife. So it's very clear that Marty has the capacity to be violent, mm-hmm. to threaten people, and mm-hmm. to like lash out has the capacity and then had a reason because sue was counseling his wife to basically leave him to me that shows you like if this is where the connection lies yeah that's so much rage and so much like that's so vengeful so i could see this we have motive and we have a lot going on here and it's gonna get even worse because we are are just halfway through (laughs) you're halfway through everyone Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of curious clues of the Keddie Cabin murders. Starting off the second half of our list is Tina Sharp's remains. Sue Sharp's 12-year-old daughter was missing from Cabin 28 after the murders. Initially, it was believed Tina had been kidnapped. Because of the presumption, the FBI was involved in the case. In late April 1981, however, the FBI reportedly backed off the case because the case was just losing ground, and they felt their presence was kind of unnecessary because the Department of Justice was doing, quote-unquote, an adequate job. Were they? Don't know. April 22nd, 1984, three years and 11 days after the murders and Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector discovered a portion of a human skull and other remains roughly 100 miles from Ketty. Wow. And it's it's like, okay, so is this what the FBI is talking about when they say a adequate I job? Think adequate was synonymous with like, ugh, maybe awesome. they're doing all right. They're doing a whatever job. We man. don't really know. Well, the bones were confirmed to be those of Tina Sharp. That's so sad. So sad. 
Like the rest of the world, Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg, making another appearance. Mike here is here Gamberg. to stay. Gamberg is here till the end, guys. Uh, he was curious to know who knew the location of Tina's remains and who helped put her there, which I am also curious to know. I think we all are. Sheriff Greg Hadwood agrees with Gamberg, telling People Magazine, there are people locally who know more than what they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are. And I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have firsthand information, which is wild. Yeah, that's insane. Wild. So do we think that people are just covering for other people in the town? Like, do we are? Yes. Is this what we're going for? Because yes, yes, it makes sense. But it's also horrifying. But it's that small town thing. Like we were saying earlier, there's been so many cases where it's like small town where nothing ever happens and we're going to protect everyone that lives here well in Keddy only had approximately 60 to 70 people who lived there Mm -hmm. so a cover-up is so much easier yeah they all knew each other that's a very small amount of people authorities believed there was a separate motivation behind kidnapping tina which i wondered that too yeah because it it's so it's just weird because they didn't she wasn't murdered along with the others in her home right so that's weird But that has yet to be proven since we don't have any suspects or evidence. But it looks weird. It doesn't doesn't, make a lot of sense. Why did they bring her somewhere else? Investigators initially believed a teacher at Tina's school was responsible for the murders. That's terrifying. Joel Walker Lipsy was a special education teacher and Tina attended his class part time. Lipsy kept a picture of Tina on his desk and there was even a picture of Tina in his home. Even worse... Lipsy was a convicted child molester. Uh, uh, what? That's all I could say as well. Why is he working at a school? Why is he a teacher? I don't know. I'm very confused. But the hopes investigators had found the killer dwindled when Lipsy was able to provide a solid alibi. Yikes. Items were found near Tina's remains, but authorities failed to secure the crime scene properly again. Like they didn't learn the first time. Look at that. And a lot of the evidence obtained was just later ruined when rain seeped into a leak at the sheriff's office and just contaminated the items. Wow. Yeah. Wow, guys. Yep. I don't I feel like this is so hard when you're looking at it when like you see that Tina was kidnapped because she wasn't killed in the home Mm -hmm. but then there's also the possibility did she run out of the home and then they got her and then they chased her and got her but no matter what she was brought because the other thing is if that happened why would they not just catch her and bring her in back into the cabin exactly and again she was found so far away it's not like she ran that far yeah that's very true well it's very weird i actually have another clue on the countdown pertaining to tina's remains being found bring it to me Four. Landing at number four this week is the blood patterns. It's not the easiest piece of evidence to talk about in any case, but the placement of blood at a crime scene can speak volumes to figuring out what happened. In this case, we have blood splatter, pools of blood, and bloody shoe prints that indicate very different things to investigators. I love this part of forensics. I recently got so into this. You and I had like a full-fledged conversation yes. about this. I used to want, I one of the things I wanted to do was become a blood spatter analyst. I, was I like, think you would have been great really into it. this. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so all the blood at the crime scene was determined to belong to the victims. Investigators believe the killers most likely wore gloves. 
And despite a possible struggle with victims, the killers were seemingly never injured. That's shocking. With I know, with all the brutality in this case, the fact that they didn't get something hap- happening like to them. no cut, nothing? Crazy. We've revealed that a hammer and two bloody knives were found. So right away, we have blood that pinpoints the murder weapons that also match the wounds on the victims. It's believed the killers were also in no rush based on what the blood evidence shows. While three victims in the cabin were on the floor, Johnny and Dana were lying in pools of blood, which investigator Mike Gamberg says indicates they were placed into those lying positions, and it wasn't just where they fell. Yeah, and that's weird. And like, it's like, why move them? There's a lot of like weird placement and weird things done. Yeah, like this. Dana's head was resting on a sofa yeah. pillow. Like what? And I... To me, it's like, were you, I, I just don't know. I don't know at all. Yeah, it's just straight. It's almost like they did random things just to mess with everybody. Yeah, like on purpose, to just make to be it, like, whatever. To make people think that there's some kind of special like thing and message involved in it or something, but there's really nothing. Yeah, and I wonder since they didn't think they were in a rush, like they probably just did this all afterwards exactly. to like mess with people. Now there were also drops of blood on Tina's bed, though as we know, she was taken, but we don't really know what condition she was in. Mm. Blood was also found on the wallpaper, on the living room ceiling, and the furniture, which reiterates the brutality of the crime scene. This was personal, and whoever did this was angry. Oh yeah, that's like movement. Mm-hmm. A bloody footprint was found in the yard, which possibly could have been from one of the killers. And it also possibly could be from Sheila when she ran back to the neighbors to get help after discovering the scene. Mm. We don't know, and it makes us more inquisitive about all these blood clues. Yeah. There was also a bloody fingerprint on the inside of a door frame and on the railing, as we mentioned in number nine. Yet it's unidentified. Oh, that makes me crazy. And worst of all, the bottoms of Sue's bare feet and one of the boy's shoes were covered in blood, suggesting that at one point they were walking around and stepping in blood. That, to me, is the number one most horrific thing about this case. I don't know why. No, it absolutely is. There's already blood everywhere. Enough that it's on the floor. Enough that it's soaking. So they have seen something happen. And now they are walking around. And it's like, why are they being moved? Like, why are they being made to walk around? That is so beyond. It's so crazy. Blood was also discovered on both bedroom doors, which could be where someone touched them or, again, the victims were mobile at some point. It just raises a lot of questions about what these poor people experienced and yes. why the killers did this. I can't wrap my brain around this. No. What kind of anger causes this? It just doesn't make sense. Three. Number three on our countdown of curious clues of the Ketty Cabin murders is Justin Smart's changing story. Justin is the son of Marilyn Smart and the stepson of Marty Smart, which is why you may also see his last name of Eason in some reports. On the night of the murders, 12-year-old Justin was in cabin 28 and was rescued unharmed along with Sue's two younger sons, Rick and Greg. According to early reports from the unharmed boys, they slept through the murders, though this would later be contradicted. 
I don't understand how they would have been no. able to sleep through this. Like, they would have been hearing things dropping. They would have been hearing slamming screaming. sounds, screaming. People are walking around in blood. Like, no. People are definitely saying things. There's no way, like, if, if, they're, if they're right and up to, like, you know, a, a handful of people are in this house. You're going to hear a lot of booming they're saying voices. Things. That's how, there's no way. Yeah. There's just no way. And again, all the anger that was directed towards these exactly. victims, like people were definitely yelling, like for sure. the perpetrators. No, that to me was always the part that I was like, what? I don't believe it. Now, remember that Sheila Sharp, Sue's 14-year-old daughter, was staying in a nearby cabin with the Seabolt family on the night of the murders. They also claimed to not hear anything, despite their cabin being extremely close by. That's another thing that always stuck out to me. How did yeah. nobody uh, like hear that? I hear I hear things like my neighbors are doing. Yeah. And they're in a whole another house like next door. Right. I can hear them. Maybe even further even away cabin. than these cabins were, yeah. right? So it doesn't make sense. When Sheila returned home to cabin 28 on the morning of April 12th, she discovered the horrifying scene, which I can't even fathom. This poor girl. She ran back to the Seabolts for help. The Seabolts helped rescue Justin, Rick, and Greg through a bedroom window so they didn't have to walk through or past to the crime scene. Thank gosh there was a bedroom window. Ugh. I can't imagine if that was the only way out. But here's where it gets curious. Later, Justin Smart told detectives that he had a dream about the details of the murders. I forgot about that part. Yeah. But then later, he claimed it had not been a dream and that he had actually witnessed the murders. I guess the only thing that you could say about that is maybe it's some kind of trauma response. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. It's so strange. Maybe his brain just didn't even want him to believe that that was real. Yeah. Justin said he was in bed with nine-year-old Rick and five-year-old Greg. A little baby. I know. When he heard a commotion outside of their bedroom, which seems right on par with what would have happened. Mm -hmm. He opened the door and saw Sue struggling with two men, one with a mustache and long hair and the other clean-shaven. Mm -hmm. Johnny Sharp and his friend Dana Wingate came out of their rooms to investigate. After a struggle, Johnny, Dana, and Sue were dead. During the murders, Tina came out of her bedroom with a blanket in hand. Oh, just visualizing that will ruin you. I know, just you. a child walking. Oh. Justin says the two men carried her outside of the cabin as she screamed for help. That's horrific. Which, if that is happening, someone heard this. Yes, absolutely. Someone heard her screaming. If you're to believe that version of Justin's story, again, a screaming girl and three people being attacked and no one is hearing anything, someone heard it. I we know. can't believe that part of his story. It's just not true. The only thing that I can think of is people do ignore like hearing things and then they knew that this happened so it's maybe like they didn't want to say they heard something but that's so crazy to me it's like i can understand if you're like i can understand to a point if you're hearing something weird and you're like oh i'm trying to convince myself that's but fine. this i know you're or right. that someone else is going to take care of it right this must have been an extended screaming. period of just horrific nightmarish screaming like i can't even fathom yeah and then hearing a little girl screaming for help I don't care what's happening. I'm that neighbor. If there's oh, a little absolutely. kid screaming for help, somebody's getting called. Yes. Even if it's something silly, at least we're going to overdo it. It here. would be better that that yeah, way. Yeah, let's just overdo it, expend all the resources just to get told that they were playing. But yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -mm. It really doesn't. A forensic artist sketched the two men based on Justin's description. Some said the sketch resembled Bobo Betty and Martin Smart. Isn't that I mean, interesting? That's curious. Some say Justin's testimony is worthless due to the inconsistencies. 
I understand that, but I don't think it's fair. Well, here's the thing. Wouldn't Justin have known his own stepfather when he saw him? I don't know. Maybe if it was like, this is is so traumatic, too. This is mayhem. Yeah. And who knows what he was wearing. Right. Who knows if he was only able to see part of his face. If, again, a trauma response, he didn't want to believe it was his stepfather. Maybe he's just like, yeah, a guy who looks like him. Your brain can do crazy things in response to these things. It's very true. And he's only 12. That's the other thing here. So that's the thing. Could it also be that this 12-year-old boy is traumatized? Yes. Or... Could it also be that the 12-year-old boy was left unharmed because the killer is his stepdad? I think that it maybe could be a combination of both. Because it is weird that those three boys were just left untouched. It makes sense. I think, I mean, I think Marty Smart did it. Exactly. That's the way it makes sense. Right. And I think that maybe he was just traumatized and... And it's like, is it trauma? Or then, did he say it was like a dream and it didn't actually happen... Was he using that as an excuse when he inadvertently ratted out his stepfather? I mean, yeah, maybe. And now he's trying to backtrack? Because, again, Marty was never really apprehended for this, so he could have pulled him aside and been like, you better change your story. You didn't see what you saw. Mm Mm-mm. And if you did say that you saw what you saw, like, bad things are going to happen. Horrific. Yeah. Dude, this case never gets any easier to digest. And you know what? Tina is really the thing that throws me totally for a loop. Like, this whole thing is so just madness. But when you think of her being taken out of the house, why? Like, I need to know what the significance there was. You know, it makes you wonder, too, because obviously the teacher was ruled out as a suspect, but they think that there may have been six people involved. Yeah. So it's like, I don't, maybe... It's just weird that he had a picture of her on his desk and, and a then, picture like, of her in his home yeah. and he's a child molester. Like, maybe and, his alibi wasn't so tight. Well, and also, maybe he did have an alibi, but it's like, uh, may- maybe, I'm just saying someone Could like that may have asked that she be taken to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. And then something went awry. And well, and again, this could, Bobo Betty, this could have been organized. Absolutely. Could be like a ring of something. This is so scary. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of curious clues of the Keddy Cabin murders. At number two is the mysterious 911 call recording. Loomis County Sheriff Special Investigator Mike Gamberg began working on the Keddy Cabin murders case in 2013 after being brought out of retirement. 
At the bottom of a box of evidence that was never opened, he found some chilling evidence. If you don't think this is a cover-up after hearing all of these things, it's like, come on, somebody knows something. So this is what we teased at number five in regards to the discovery of Tina Sharp's remains. Gamberg spent about 10 days digging through boxes when he found an audio recording. Oh, just an audio recording. Just an audio recording that is of a 911 call dating back to 1984. Cool, cool, cool. As we know, on April 22nd, three years after the murders, the remains of Tina Sharp were found. Weeks after the discovery of her remains, this unknown person called 911, identified the remains as Tina's, and then hung up. And that was just sitting at the bottom of an unopened evidence box. Like, why would we not open that, and why would we not investigate that? You guys are killing it. Yeah, doing so adequate here. Chillingly, records indicate that this caller knew the remains belonged to Tina before investigators confirmed the fact using dental records. The fact that this was just floating in space Like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's a big deal. Huge. Clearly, Gamberg believes this caller must have been involved in the murders in some way and knew the location of Tina's body. Yeah, and he was just waiting. Now, this is going to absolutely infuriate you. Oh, man. The tape was never admitted into evidence, and Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood has said, quote, I am not by nature a conspiracy theorist, but there are facts and circumstances, the number and the nature of which I can't ignore anymore. You don't say. It's like, maybe we should have never ignored them in the first place because your job is literally to not ignore things. Come on. Your job is actually to be very astute about things. This is so clear. Come on, Greg. When it comes to this tape and the question we all have, how did this get buried? Gamberg told the Reno Gazette Journal, Somehow, it was overlooked 35 years ago, and I got lucky enough to find it. Honestly, Gamberg. I know. That's all I have to say. Gamberg. Two words. Gamberg. Get it. And is overlooked an understatement to just, like, (laughs) sloppy detective work? Ah, yeah. It was overlooked. Overlooked. You're not supposed to overlook things when you're doing detective work on a homicide, on a multiple homicides case. Seriously, I feel like that totally confirms that this was a cover-up, because why would they not have opened that box Yeah, if they're investigating? Absolutely. And I really do think that could have been somebody who was involved in the murders and knew where she was and then was just waiting for them to discover her. And when they heard the news... They knew where they had discovered her, and they were like, let me tell you who it is. And I mean... To clear their conscience. Three years of a guilty conscience? You're right. Yeah. It is curious that the call came on the anniversary of the murders. Oh, I mean, come on. That's huge. Come on. And that the tape has been turned over to compare with the suspect's voices, but it also reminds investigators that people who live there have information they're not sharing. Come on. Every, if you're listening and you were from that area, could come forward, <laughs> come please. On. I want to talk to all the people who lived there in that area yes. at that time. I mean, it wouldn't take long. There's only like it 70 wouldn't. of them. I could put them in a room and just talk to them. Have a press conference with them. <sighs> One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 curious clues of the Ketty Cabin murders, Marty Smart's alleged confessions. There are two instances where Marty Smart seemingly admitted or alluded to the fact that he was the killer, or at least one of them. 
he was, that's why. Even before these so-called confessions come into play, we can say Marty had a motive. Sue Sharp was helping Marty's wife, Marilyn, leave him, which she did. She moved out of the house literally on the day the bodies were discovered. This makes me curious how far out that was planned, or it, was it just a coincidence? I don't think that's a coincidence right? at all. That can't be a coincidence. She definitely dipped. That is too much of a coincidence. Yeah, no. Yeah, something's up there. We have Marty's horrible behavior and violent streak as well. I mean, does it mean he murdered someone? Not necessarily, but it shows he may be capable for sure. Yeah. And we have a timeline that works in favor of Marty and Bo being available to do this that night, even in the men in black suits, which, by the way, where are those suits? Somebody let me know. Where are they? Let's test them for DNA now. They're at the bottom of a box. Were they wearing them? They're at the bottom of a box, just unchecked. After the murders and the onslaught of intense attention on the case, Marty Smart left town. He took off and ran away to Reno. Was it the pressure of being a suspect? Was it the guilt? Or both? I think a mixture of both. I think it was too. I think he was feeling the pressure. I think he knew he didn't. I think he did it, <laughs> And I think he was feeling a little bit, I need to get out of this tiny town because everyone knows I did it. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of thing. Now, let's dig into how the pressure or guilt or whatever may have brought out the truth from Marty with a couple pretty obvious confessions. We'll start with Marty's counselor. While living in Reno, Marty began seeing a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration. And it's to this counselor that he apparently confessed to the murders. The counselor reported it to the Department of Justice officials working on the case. But no written report was made of this counselor's statement, according to Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. Why would no written report be done? Because a cover-up. Exactly. According to the counselor's recollection from May 1981, Marty said, quote, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. Because somebody else there did those ones while he did the other ones. There are multiple people involved and he is totally one of them. Yes. Smart could have been under the false assumption that what he told his counselor would remain confidential. Because that's pretty common. People think that. Yeah, but like not when it comes to murder. Well, that's the thing. The law states otherwise when it comes to a confession of murder. One researcher who investigated this confession highlights where the counselor recalls that while talking about Sue, Marty, quote, was a zero during the confession. No stress, flat affect, until he mentioned Tina. When asked why Tina didn't run away, Marty indicated he'd incapacitated her. Which doesn't that make sense? They found some blood spatter on her bed. I mean, that does make sense. So you would think that they maybe hit her with something, incapacitated her, a little blood gets on the sheets, and they're out. Yeah, and then, I don't know, I just don't think maybe she screamed that much as, like, they thought she did. Yeah, maybe that is just Justin not remembering it, but it's like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And for him to come out with that specific piece of information when there is physical evidence on her bed to corroborate it? Yeah. Hello. There it is. But no more details were given or asked about the murder. When asked about a motive, though, it seems like the counselor points to Sue helping Marilyn divorce Marty. Which I makes think a lot that of sense. is huge. I think that's like the biggest part of this case. Exactly. Now let's talk about a letter. Was this all for love, you ask? A second so-called confession from Marty Smart seems to say yes. 
Marilyn Smart reportedly moved out of her cabin on April 12th, the same day the murders were discovered. About two weeks after moving to Reno, Marty wrote a letter to Marilyn on flowery yellow stationery, just like Elwood's. <laughs> Sprayed it with perfume and everything. Yep. In the handwritten letter, Marty professes his love for her and alludes to some difficulties in their marriage. The letter concludes by saying, and this is bonkers, quote, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great. What else do you want? Okay. If, if that wow. is not it, I don't know what is. And also, it's the great for me. Great. great. Real nice. Like, I, I murdered a bunch of people for you. Like, really, Marty? Marty is the most extra. The three-piece suit makes sense for him. Marty's the most. He's the most and the least all at once. Yeah, right. Marilyn says that she doesn't recall receiving the letter, but says she recognized her ex-husband's handwriting, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. In another unfortunate failure of evidence... Another Mike, one? Another one! Mike Gamberg said the letter was, quote, overlooked, again, and never listed as evidence. Just like the 911 tape. I don't know if I've, like, said this before, but do you think this may be a cover-up? Yeah, I don't know. It's like... The overlooked thing is what's really bothering me. I'm like, can we stop pretending that it was overlooked? Seriously. And can we just say it was hidden? This is like the LAPD. It really is. <laughs> Gamberg said, quote, if it isn't a confession, it's damn sure close. I which mean, I totally believe. It basically is a confession. It is. It's one. He said, I bought it with four people's lives. What else does anyone need? Exactly. And that means that I killed four people. And like the, you know, the connection with like our love and... I'm trying to get, you know, it's like she was being counseled to divorce him. He's a man He's scorned. angry. He's still in quote unquote love. So it seems like it was personal. I think so. Clearly the police investigation was um, sloppy. To say the absolute least. Sloppy is a real nice word for I what was going on. I think we need to combine like six words that mean sloppy and yeah. just like make them the word for this. Yeah, sloppy is just, it was definitely sloppy. It was oozing. That's how sloppy it was. It was infected. It was. Gross. Even when Mike Gamberg took it over, he called it, quote, a very poor investigation. It's not what was done. It's what wasn't done. Nothing was done. But his theory is this. The killers were already in the cabin with Sue Sharp when the teenagers, Johnny and Dana, arrived unexpectedly, which I think makes sense. I agree with that. In trying to help her, it turned into a fight. He does believe the killers were there for a while, as we mentioned, and again, I agree. Mm -hmm. Gamberg's opinion is that Sue was the last one alive. She was made to witness what happened to her son and his friend, and she probably saw what happened to Tina as well. Oh my god, that's absolutely Which terrible. such a huge, le le like, such another layer of disgusting to this. But it horrifying. makes sense when you think of how horrifying this was in general. Like, it does. I could absolutely picture them making her walk around to different areas yeah. and watching all of this happen. And that kind of speaks to why her feet would be bloody. Exactly. They're like, now come over here and this is what we're going to do. You're very it's right. Terrifying. And just prolonging it, it's that's personal. Yeah. Like, really personal. Seriously. I agree with Mike. I agree with Mike. I think there's a reason why Mike was brought out of retirement. I think they were like, hey, buddy, we really need you. Yeah. I feel like Gamberg needs to be on other unsolved cases. I'm like, where are you, Mike? Seriously. You're doing great. Just never retire, please. You're doing great. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Keep going. <laughs> I'm, I want to help you if I can.
Wow, the podcast research gods, I think they knocked this one out of the park. I, that, first of all, number one was 100% number one. The fact that there are several confessions from Marty Smart. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. And they're not like forced confessions. It's not like he's confessing this under duress or under, when they're questioning him for 12 hours at a time and not feeding him and he just wants to answer. (laughs) No, it's just things they overlooked. doing it. He's just literally, he's offering up the information. He really is. And he also offered up the hammer information. It's almost like he wanted to get caught. It's kind of like he did. That kind of makes me wonder, did he call about Tina's remains because he wanted to get caught? That is a very good point. I don't know. If there's organized crime involved in this, and we're also adding in, obviously police were involved because how many pieces of evidence were just completely ignored? Absolutely. That letter? That letter was just completely ignored, just overlooked. And the 911 recording? It's a confession. At the bottom of a box that was never opened? Police have to be, or at least police officers that were on the force at this time, yes. definitely did something. I. They de- also didn't secure crime scenes. Right, I definitely believe that they just went into this probably knowing what had happened, and they were like, well, let's just do the worst job ever. Yeah, because then you're wondering if the organized crime part of it is connected to the police force, right. because sometimes that can go hand in hand. Yeah, like a, a shady cop hate it oh man oh i i think the confessions are definitely the most damning that letter for sure so damning i think the fact that he was able to say that they incapacitated tina when there is evidence on that bed to suggest that that did happen yeah even if it goes against what justin said i think that's a really big piece of evidence to me i I absolutely agree with that and then i think the whole thing about sue trying to help marilyn escape i think that was like the biggest motive ever for sure i think it's it all just fits perfectly it's unfortunate that they're dead now because i wish that there was a way to pin this on not pin this on them just like prove that it was them, and they could actually serve time i know well thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another great episode Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. And you can find all episodes of the show and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify as well. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do, you can follow our podcast Morbid anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at a Morbid Podcast or on Instagram at Morbid Podcast. And keep it weird until next Monday. But not this weird. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Anthony Valsic. Fact checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Chelsea Wood. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash and Elena Urquhart. Mm-hmm.